Hello and welcome to DigFin Vox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, like, share, send it around, spread the word. My guest today is Naveen Malela, Managing Director at JP Morgan Chase and Head of Onyx Global Coin, one of the most interesting blockchain projects coming out of a bank. The blockchain world has been about digital assets, but what about the liability side? I spoke with Naveen about the ideas around deposit tokens, what they are, how they're different from stable coins or CBDCs, use cases, risks, and regulation. Naveen Malela, welcome to Digfin Vox. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, last time we chatted was in Singapore about a year ago, uh, and um, things have been moving in the blockchain tokenization world very quickly since then. Uh, I know that at JP Morgan Chase, you guys at Onyx have been doing quite a lot in this space, uh, and I wanted to use this time with you to understand some of the the terminology that's coming out of uh, the the research from the bank side. Uh, and put that into some sort of context for people that are, whether they're on the finance side, TradFi, or they're in the, the crypto space, or they're in the tokenization space, somewhere in the middle, just to kind of get a piece, a sense of where we're going with um, with products, regulation, and really the future of money itself. So let me start with deposit tokens. Um, I'm going to go back to a paper that you put out only a little while ago, um, and the I'm just gonna read your definition of this. And then I just wanna sort of break it down into its component parts. So we really understand when we talk about deposit tokens because there's a lot flying around between this stable coins, CBDCs, and then public crypto. So I think it's useful to understand it. So you're calling deposit tokens, transferable tokens issued on a blockchain by a licensed depository institution, which evidence a deposit claim against the issuer. Yeah, Jim, and maybe to put the deposit tokens in context, I would like to sort of maybe take a step back and start talking about how deposit tokens came about from all of the work that we've been doing over the last few years. Um, we've spoken, I think, a few times about JPM Coin and what we were trying to do with JPM Coin, which we've launched in 2020. Um, so JPM Coin is essentially a bank account on blockchain. Mm -hmm. So what we were looking to do with JPM Coin was introduce a new sub-ledger to the bank, which is distributed ledger based, so that we can provide capabilities around always on money 24 by 7. We can provide capabilities around triggers, programmable triggers. Uh, we can provide capabilities around atomic settlements and multi-asset ledgers. So we wanted to do all of that without fundamentally changing the construct of a deposit. So what we did was we essentially kept the same definition a deposit account, a bank account, FDIC uh, protected. So, um, and for all practical purposes, um, from both a legal definition standpoint and a regulatory standpoint, it's it's no different than a regular demand deposit account. We've had uh, considerable success with the product over the years. 
but one of the limiting factors with a, a deposit account or a bank account on blockchain is the transferability or the reachability aspects of it the account can only be used in transacting with parties who are also account holders at jp morgan so it's essentially a closed loop system which is 24 by 7 and which gives you all of the benefits that we spoke about in terms of programmable triggers atomic settlements the deposit tokens we wanted to break that constraint a little bit and start looking at how we can reach um, to entities or individuals who are not necessarily account holders of jp morgan and the way you do that we think is that with the evolution of some of the capabilities especially digital identity solutions mm. we could start looking to get comfortable with credentials with verifiable credentials provided not necessarily by jp morgan but by a trust anchor of some sorts a trust what anchor, would be an example of that for example like for example in correspondent banking like we routinely um, rely on the kyc being done by the banks who avail of the correspondent banking services with jp morgan so we don't do the kyc but we rely on the kyc of the parties mm -hmm. who bank with us so we think that the similar sort of notion could um, could could um, could apply out here as well with the deposit tokens um, the entity who is transacting with a deposit token issued by JPM could potentially have verifiable credentials issued by some other bank, or it could have a, a national identity of some sort. So that is how we think that we can address some of the weaknesses which are frequently cited in terms of KYC weaknesses, which are frequently cited with bearer tokens kind of a model. So that, that's how we're thinking about it. We are looking to improve the reachability and that's the point about transferability. What's the importance between, you're talking about accounts, but you're also talking about helping people that are serving uh, users that may not have a, a bank account with yeah. you. So in the, in the blockchain space, we often you know, deal with tokens that represent a virtual, you know, they're basically an asset or something in some sort of virtual form. We don't really hear about deposits or liabilities in the crypto space. It seems to be purely asset driven, which I think is a big difference between that and a commercial banking uh, you know, system. You're trying to bring some of that liability side into the equation here, I think. But help me understand when we're talking about tokens versus accounts. Yeah. So, Jim, that's exactly right. Like, um, I feel that the digital asset space, you know, is this all encompassing uh, sort of term which covers everything. But it's not just us, like JPM coin is a liability product. Central bank digital currencies, especially the wholesale sort, I would argue are a, a liability uh, based product. Mm -hmm. So, and I think some of our peers have looked at correcting the definition with the launch of the regulated liability network. So, so what we're looking to do with a, a token based model is if you think about um, what I talked about JPM coin, right? Like the transferability is limited to other account holders. Now you could have a world where, you know, you replicate the two tier architecture of central bank money and commercial bank money and central bank money providing the fungibility on mm -hmm. blockchain, on distributed ledger rails. And that will solve for some of the pain points. And that is something which is an immediate next step, which uh, people are gravitating towards. But to create truly peer-to-peer -peer money, like for example, um, you know, I'm let's say I'm sat out here in Singapore, you're sat out there in Hong Kong. 
how do we truly create peer to peer transferability or peer to peer transfers without having to go from account to account to account so mm. that we think is basically the token based model and if you think about the token based model um if you if you if you believe in a world where defi protocols especially have relevance in the institutional context whether that is automated market making or whether that is uh, decentralized exchanges lending borrowing protocols so all of those defi protocols need a token based model to interact with with an account based model they don't lend themselves to interaction with these defi protocols so for all of those things we do need to make, take that next step from an account based model to a token based model which is of a bearer nature of some sort what what does that imply for commercial banks that have based their entire existence essentially on that fundamental building block of an account deposit uh can you transition yourself into something that's where more token based and what does that imply for i guess your own access to to deposit so that you can then be a lender uh and and fuel the the credit economy yeah so um i mean if you the, the way we are defining deposit token is that it is purely on the liability side of the balance sheet we don't see the issuance of deposit tokens or the take off of deposit tokens impacting the asset side of the balance sheet and we've been quite deliberate about that approach and we think that that's the fundamental departure between deposit tokens and stable coins if you think about stable coins which need to be backed one to one with high quality liquid assets our argument is that that is narrow banking that sucks up a lot of liquidity and it is not scalable our view with deposit tokens is we as banks i mean the recent events notwithstanding if you look at gsips for example you are subject to constant um, uh, stress tests you are subject to prudential regulation in terms of capital having adequate capital buffers having adequate liquidity buffers so we envisage a world where deposit tokens are issued purely as a liability product without any change to how you manage the assets in terms of the reserve ratios so from a commercial bank standpoint where it would need to sort of move to start looking at this product at scale is commercial banks need to start getting comfort around um shared ledgers and universal ledgers as books and records because that is where the liability will reside they will need to start getting comfortable around uh, kyc being done by other trust anchors and relying on verifiable credentials you need to start getting comfortable around looking at on chain surveillance solutions or on chain screening solutions rather than the current surveillance and screening solutions that you have all of those things are things that commercial banks need to get comfortable about but i have no doubt in my mind that you know today the dominant form of money is commercial bank money even in digital currencies well that's not going to change so commercial banks will have a large role to play and that's the reason why you see that there is uh, a lot of literature starting to come around tokenized deposits and deposit tokens and how that can interact with cbdc's to create solutions at scale what does that imply for efforts that are going on in the the public permissionless blockchain world let's say ethereum for example uh which now has uh, introduced um the ability for people to withdraw and staking and they you know they they posit this as being similar to a, a bond function um what that means from a regulatory point of view i don't know because then that's implying securities uh but um but leave that one aside for just a moment uh you know is it possible that the crypto world in the public sphere could come up with something that 
you know, maybe you don't need uh, a deposit, tokenized deposits uh, from a commercial bank. You know, maybe they can create their own sort of quasi form of liabilities. Uh, you know, do you have a take on on what's happening there, and if that qualifies as true liabilities and therefore some sort of true credit? So, Jim, my view is that all of those solutions are unlikely to scale, right? Like, if you believe in the fractional reserve banking, I mean, now it could be argued with the recent events whether you believe in it or not, but if you believe in that model, the fractional reserve banking model, and if you believe in um, commercial banks creating credit through the money multiplier, the only scale form of digital currencies is going to be commercial bank money because anything which is done by a non-depository institution will be a more narrow form of money. So which means that for every token which is issued, you will need to have HQLA of some sort. Um, and I mean, regardless of a blip um, recently, we live in a world of quantitative tightening, right? Like liquidity is going to get scarcer and scarcer. So high quality liquid assets, um, as an example, there will not be enough of that going around for scale solutions to come outside of depository institutions. Do deposits, uh, tokenized deposits, will they exist in a world without central bank digital currencies or are CBDCs like the sanquina, the, the necessary ingredient uh, of, of having tokenized deposits? The, uh, the, where CBDCs come into being is providing that singleness of currency or the oneness of money. Um, you know, we've had in history private bank notes, and there were issues in terms of them trading at par against each other. You had to have clearing houses of some sort. And where the two-tier financial architecture addressed that was providing that fungibility and creating that singleness of money, which I think is going to be critical if you wanted to use um, tokens or money to discharge payment obligations. So I do think CBDCs have a, a role to play in terms of creating this fungibility, but I don't think that you need to have everything in place for this to take off. Commercial bank money, commercial bank institution, commercial, commercial banks and institutions, especially GSIBs, could start with deposit tokens, there will be a high degree of credibility. So they would most likely end up trading at par. And as they start scaling, then the need will be felt for CBDCs to provide that fungibility across these various commercial bank tokens. So that's our belief. And that's the reason why we are pushing for deposit tokens to, to, to be initiated, to start giving impetus to this ecosystem. You've already got JP Morgan coin. Um... But um, school me up on on where that is evolved. I mean, I understand that is uh, at this point a, a payment uh, mechanism among your own existing clients uh, within your own private network of of actors. Um, what has to happen for that then to become a, an actual deposit uh, form that people use and they they bank with you in that manner? So the JPM coin or um, which is, as I said, um, a, a deposit account on blockchain is being actively used by our clients today. Um, and the way they use it is uh, as a 24 by seven clearing and settlement network across JP Morgan franchise. So it almost sits like a layer two above our regular core banking systems, which are layer one. That, so that, that's already happening. The second place uh, where it's just just to confirm that then the, the actual settlement takes place in your traditional banking system, and this is more than just a uh, an enabler of of information and value to, to transfer among them. 
Not really, uh, Jim. That is where um, you know this is different. This is a new subledger which has been introduced into the bank, which sits mm -hmm. at the same level as the other core banking system and feeds the general ledger. Okay. So when money moves on this subledger on this JPM coin system, the settlement is final. Okay. Uh, so you don't have the need to actually go off chain. So there is no mirroring of any sort which is happening. Um, so so a that is one and. There has been examples in the past of Signet or Silvergate Exchange Network, SEN, of networks of uh, this sort which no longer exist. Um, so so this, this is in the same vein, but it does more and it does that at scale. Um, where it is also come into being is as part of a multi-asset ledger. So products like intraday repo, where you have a repo transactions for two hours or three hours, um, that is where both the JPM coin as cash on chain and the tokenized securities in a single block, you know, you have basically the exchange done in an atomic fashion. That is what makes products like intraday repo happen. If you were to do it with traditional systems, it would be very difficult for you to, let's say, do a two hour intraday repo because, you know, trying to reconcile whether cash has moved, securities has moved and unwinding it all back will take a lot longer than two hours. So this notion of Recently, BIS has, talked, has spoken about a universal programmable ledger. So these are the sort of multi-asset ledgers which we are already live with, and that is where JPM coin is being used. Yeah. And as I said, the, the next evolution of this is to improve the reachability, and that is where we need to imbue it with bearer token-like properties, and that is where we see it going next. But we see both of them coexisting. And we talk about those bearer-like properties uh, does that mean it would then have to somehow take on a life outside of your network um, in in public chains as well as in in, in well as well as shared ledgers? That's exactly right, uh, Jim. Um, so our view was that public chains provide the best reachability. Uh, most recently, you know that different regulators have come about, like in terms of clearly stating that they believe that the risk profile of public blockchains is significantly different from that of permission blockchains. So. We do see it as an evolution. That's where we want to go to public blockchains. But before that, we see deposit tokens as taking a life outside of our networks in other permission chains. Okay. We, we see it as different uh, form factors, if you will, to use the technology phrase, right? Like it's the same deposit, but there are different form factors. One form factor is the account form factor, which is the JPM coin. The second form factor is that sitting on other permission chains. So, so, so that's how we see it. Naveen, what's the regulatory implications of this um you know we're talking about essentially tradfied models transported into this new technological environment um and i think for most regulators they like to think of themselves as tech agnostic right we hear that all the time um which i think most people uh, agree with i guess in principle uh but how much of what you're talking about um is going to be possible to just uh, use existing regulation and norms around capital requirements, risk management tools, et cetera, uh, if we're dealing with uh, tokenized deposits and essentially sort of commercial banking transported into a blockchain setting? Yeah. So the latter part of it is easier, Jim. Commercial bank um, uh, products transported into blockchain realm. That, that's what we've done with JPM Coin. And there we've been very deliberate about using the same controls, whether that is same monitoring, same surveillance, same sanction screening capabilities. So we've had this thin sort of subledger, but then which is connected to the mothership in many different ways. Uh, 
and that is how we've got our agencies comfortable with what we're doing deposit tokens by its very nature being bearer tokens being outside of the bank in different permission chains will need to break away from that model a little bit so like for example one of the things which we do think is quite important for deposit tokens is the notion of uh, deposit insurance so um, like and we do need to work with the likes of fdic to understand how when a, a token issued by jp morgan is held by a non jp morgan entity who doesn't have a contractual relationship with jp morgan how can then they get access to deposit insurance of you know to which jp morgan contributes to is so, there a lesson from the euro dollar market i mean euro dollars are us dollars held in overseas banks by non us players right and they they interact with the the dollar system uh pretty easily but nonetheless those are not they're not fdic uh protected um and uh they're really sort of out of the, the immediate purview of of us regulation so is is that a is that a a sensible comparison i it, it, there, there might be players who might want to draw upon that comparison not for us um jim i mean we would want to be this product to be available squarely out of our bank entity based out of the us you know okay. that is that is our preference because we think that that is going to be the scale solution if you want to start offering us dollar um, deposit tokens um so so yeah i mean in terms of where regulations need to involve we need to think about deposit insurance we need to think about things like um, screening right like inline screening recently japan has come up with stablecoin regulation and legislation which they're going to put an act in the next couple of months where they are looking to control it in control um looking to have controls imposed only at the point of off ramps for example when you're trying to withdraw and not necessarily doing it during transfers um i don't know if that sort of model will be the model going forward um yeah i mean so we do need greater clarity and harmonization to a certain extent of the of the of the approaches being taken by the different regulators right but then you're also implying that uh you know you're in singapore i'm in hong kong the two of us could be transacting we have you know i, I you bank i guess with jp morgan chase i i bank at hsbc uh and you know we could be transacting it has nothing to do with the us but you would still have some layer there some one of the counterparties would still have fdic us fdic insurance is that the the vision that you're talking about the vision that i'm talking about is as long as you and i are transacting where you're a, a, a customer of hsbc the fact that now i've transferred a jp morgan issued deposit token to you jm means that you know you have deposit insurance at that point in time right okay right? yeah so so that's okay. the world we would ideally like right. to properly so that, that that's very interesting right you're sort of you know externalizing that that deposit insurance <clears throat> and what what else you know you you because you're in you're in singapore i know you guys work very closely with um the authorities there on, on a variety of things um your co-investors in uh partior uh, a shared blockchain uh, network with uh, with uh, singapore inc uh, entities um <clears throat> what what are the the issues you know you're, you you start off talking about you know we've been talking about us based financial institution and you know you want to extend us sort of regulations and norms uh across what you're trying to do here how does it work working with in other jurisdictions asia there's a lot going on 
Um, will they be bringing their own sort of flavor to this? Um, how, you know, how do we find some means of of agreement or live and let live so that you can accept FDIC uh, uh, insurance uh, on a deposit in in Singapore or Hong Kong um, uh, while still being compliant with with MAS or MA or whomever is is regulating that space? Yeah. So Jim, again, we we need to see how this uh, space evolves, right? Like, um, and this is where you know there are bodies, FSB, BIS, looking mm -hmm. to sort of bring some degree of harmonization in terms of how you think about uh, how you think about these things. Yeah. One thing which is very heartening is almost everybody is thinking about deposit tokens, um, and I would like to draw the distinction between tokenized deposits and deposit tokens because. I mean, it's what is not well understood is like, if, if you look at tokenized assets, right? Like it's well understood. You have an asset which is in custody somewhere, you tokenize it. And what you have now is a claim on something which is custodied somewhere else. Yeah, a derivative so, essentially. Yeah, a derivative. Whereas we look at it as native issuance, right? Like deposit tokens is, is a native issuance. This is the primary books and records. There is no off-chain thing which exists. Right. So that terminology, Apart, I think almost everybody's talking about deposit tokens, the need for harmonization in terms of how that is treated, e either from a FATF standpoint, travel rule standpoint, either from um, you know KYC uh, or from an FDIC, capital requirements, liquidity requirements. So we'll just have to wait and see how this evolves, but Japan's got the lead, Singapore's um, got the lead in terms of pushing out uh, consultations in terms of stable coins and deposit tokens. So we would see a lot more uh, emergent products from this part of the world. But as I said, given BIS, FSB, and all of the involvement, we would hope to see a degree of harmonization. Yeah. One last uh, question, sort of, I guess, culminating uh, from what we've been talking about, uh, Naveen, is in the US uh, this past spring, of course, we've seen uh, several rather uh, unsettling bank runs uh, done in the silver uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank lost 42 billion deposits in a single day as people were just tweeting and and uh, you know on their phones just zooming it all out. Um, so although bank runs are nothing new, the the speed and the digitalization of that run uh, was I think surprised a lot of people um, and and led to it very difficult for the Fed to be able to respond in time. Uh, when we're talking about FDIC coverage and so on. That's, you know, the importance of insurance, I think, has been only brought home even more strongly after that that incident. Um, what are the some of the issues of, of bank runs when you got a 24-7 uh, global marketplace with automatic market makers, DeFi protocols, and so on? Um, if you end up with tokenized deposits, could you end up with, you know, if, if, if there's some change in a the macro, there's no central bank that's necessarily on these rails directly to provide that backstop. Uh, so how do we risk manage this thing? Great question, Jim. And I think that this is pretty fundamental, right? One of the things that um, is often missed in the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank was the, the fact was that 4 p.m. on a Friday, they were unable to execute uh, a repo transaction because of Fed cutoff yeah. times. They were unable to source liquidity, even though they had perfectly good collateral. I was asked a similar question at one of the BIS conference, and my response is actually that's the wrong way to look at it. I mean, yes, in in this digital world, right, like everything is becoming 24 by 7, uh, would it not exacerbate bank runs? You can't control the front end and the consumer behavior. That's where the world is going towards. 
what is the need of R is to strengthen the core, strengthen the backend. I would argue that products that we do like intraday repos or what we've done with uh, institutional DeFi last year through Project Guardian in terms of creating deep pools of liquidity. What that means is that it would allow in situations like this, banks to tap into multiple sources of liquidity at a very short notice. So the core starts keeping pace with the front end behavior. Um, so that point is often missed. And uh, we think that the work that we are doing creates a lot more resilience in the core. Okay, great. I think it's a good place to end it. I just want to last thing because I started with this. So I want to I want to end it in terms of talking about again, the, that definition of uh, deposit tokens. Uh, um, and again, that, that that's evidence of a deposit claim against the issuer. Um, I guess what you're saying is if we have multiple issuers with these multiple deposit claims, uh, and we may not have necessarily a, a 4 p.m. close of the Fed window to, to rely on uh, for these things, but essentially that you need a you need a huge amount of counterparties in this world uh, so that the, these claims can be traded, swapped, uh, whatever, in time to make sure that there, um, there is the liquidity and capital available when when there's going to be a glitch, because there's always going to be some kind of glitch. Um, so I guess that's... Yeah, so I, I guess to that extent, then what we're you know what you're really aiming for is when we talk about these these issues around regulation, around risk management, and so on, um, you know, and the that in I don't know I don't want to say interoperability per se, but let's say the um, the bringing together of regulators that can have some harmonization and agreement on this, whether that's being willing to extend deposit insurance overseas or finding ways to. Uh, manage risk when something happens in a different time zone outside of your jurisdiction. Um, the the main response to this seems to be that the depth of the marketplace uh, is is at this point going to be the best defense uh, rather than trying to create lots of bilateral one-on-one -on -one, uh, very fragile structures like that. That's exactly right, Gene. And, and, and we have the ability to do that. And we have the ability to increase resilience in the financial infrastructure. And that's that's what we're excited to building towards. Great. Naveen Malala, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Always a pleasure speaking with you, Gene. Cheers.